Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, October 9th, 2022. Today's sermon is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. If you'd like to follow along, please go to gracebaptistchurchnc.org, click the current sermons link at the top, and click today's manuscript. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. This morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning there. We will look at a few other verses throughout, but Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 11 to 18. And then I will pray, and we'll ask the Lord to help us and give us grace as we trust in Him, as we stand before, uh, with one another before and have this Word, God's Word before us today. So, <clears throat> Hebrews 10 verse 11, going to verse 18. And every priest stands daily at his service. <clears throat> Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, or he, implied Christ, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And I think verse 14 is, is probably the main verse of this passage. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for a time that we can meet together and read from your word. Father, it is good. Thank you for these songs that we've already sung about the so many things, about mostly about the glorious gospel and your great comfort that comes down to us in the gospel. Today, Father, as we approach Hebrews chapter 10 here and we think about the great offering of Christ, I pray that Jesus would increase. I pray that that I would decrease, that we would decrease. I pray that He would be more beautiful to us and that seeing Him and Your greatness and Your work in Christ, that it, it would be by Your Spirit, that it would be effectual in our hearts, that we would love Him more. I pray, Father, that in spite of me, that You would work Fathers, we, <clears throat> we trust you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the sermon, really, is from last, two weeks ago. And, and Blaine, thanks for preaching out. I don't see Blaine. I think he's in the nursery. But it was good to have Blaine up here, I'm sure, last week as, you, as, as, as we took the Lord's Supper together. But we took off to Kansas City, did a wedding out there, and came back. And we brought Josiah, kind of, with us. For, and we're, we're heading on vacation this week, so be praying for us. And so, two weeks ago, though, we, I preached the first part of what is the summary of what we've been looking at what, since way back in chapter 5 of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, the author is really clear. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Says, now the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And for us today, as Christians, nothing, nothing can be more important than that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Nothing at all. And so, just to, to as part of my introduction, just to bring us back to what. <clears throat> 
remind us what we talked about two weeks ago. We considered two truths two weeks ago about the offering of Christ. The first was the offering of Christ was once for all. Once for all. Second truth we looked at was the offering of Christ was efficient to take care of our sins. So his sacrifice was a sin-bearing sacrifice. The priests of the Old Covenant, they stood daily to make offerings. And in their, that system, they were continuous over and over. And in that system, in the Old Testament, there was no end to that. It was day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year with the high priests. But they could never accomplish the will of God. So let me ask, when you might think, well, what does John mean by that? Well, what was the will of God in this respect? Well, look over at verse 14, chapter 10, verse 14. This is the will of God for us. For by one single offering, that's the offering of Christ, He has perfected or fulfilled or completed for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are set apart. Set apart. So as the church of Christ today, we are set apart because of His death, because of His sacrifice. The will of God was to save a people for Himself. This was God's will, God's desire from the very beginning. And the reason that we need to be saved is because we are sinners. And in and of ourselves, we are separated from God. And we, we, we hear this often. I preach this pretty much every week. We are separated from God because of our sins. We are guilty, and our consciences bear this. And God cannot just let sin go. He can't just be like the professor. He says, everybody did really bad today. So I'm going to curve the test and just give all of you C's or B's or A's. God cannot do that. And so when we think back to that old system, there must be an acceptable way besides the blood of bulls and goats that, that could never accomplish the will of God to save His people once and for all. Brothers and sisters, when we think about our sin against a holy God, we must know that our sin, our sins, or our sin against a holy God is eternal. Eternal. And why is it eternal? Because God is eternal. So we sin against an eternal God. And so when we think about those animals of that old system, they were of the earth. They were created just like us. Their death... Their sacrifice could never reach any further than there in the tabernacle or there in the temple or there on the altar. They could not reach into the heavens. They could never completely cover our sins. They could never take away the wrath of God from the wrath from an eternal God. And so as I Speak about these things. And I've been speaking about things. Maybe you have a question. Maybe you say, well, John, why did God give such a system in the Old Testament? Why, did, why such a system of sacrifices if God knew they could not accomplish His will? Well, hopefully you'll get that throughout the sermon a bit. But that system was good and right. And it was there for a time. And that system served its purpose. Each year, as they continued to do that, continued, the priests would go there to the tabernacle and then later on to the temples. They would continue that system. And each year, they would continue and they'd come back the next year and the next year. And God was still gracious in that. And they were serving their purpose. And they allowed Israel to continue on in God's favor in that way as they continued because there must be a sacrifice for sins. There must be death. But those sacrifices were only shadows. They were pictures. They picture the offering of Christ. And who is He? Well, if we go back in Hebrews, let me remind us. In chapter 1, you're welcome to turn and look there with me if you want to. But I'm just going to summarize. Who is this who is our Lord Jesus? Who is this great one who sacrificed himself? He is the radiance 
of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the Son of God. The angels worship Him. His throne as God is forever and ever. He remains forever. The heavens are His work. He laid the foundations of the world and all of these things will perish. But the Son remains. And those animals of that system, as those priests bought, brought those bulls and goats and, and other animals there, they were passive. But it was not so with the Son. Before the foundations of the world, the Father, I believe, asks the Son, Will you go and accomplish my will, my desire? And we know that Jesus says, yes, I will go and do your will. Look at chapter 10. Just look, look at verses 5 to 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is none other than the incarnation of Christ. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then, this is the Son speaking, I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. <laughs> By the way, that is the that is the book of the decrees of God, the mysterious decrees of God from before the foundations of the world. Do you realize these words here? If you were going to summarize the gospel, you could do it right here in verses 5 to 7. In these words, we find the glorious gospel of God. And this gospel is displayed in the one-time, sin-bearing offering of Christ. So that's my my introduction with a summary from two weeks ago. For today, I have two more truths. And we'll spend a considerable amount of time on the first one and very little on the second one. But I have two truths, and here they are. Considering the offering of Christ, His offering was one, victorious. So that's the first truth. Second, His offering was foretold. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. So number one. Sacrifice, the offering of Christ was a victorious sacrifice. Look again at chapter, uh, chapter 10 there. Look at verses 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. So with the priests of the Old Covenant... They continued daily and weekly and monthly and then yearly as the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And so with that system, under the Old Covenant, we might say that the battle and the war against sin and death remained because it was continual. There is no finality with that system, with those animals. There is no completion of the war. There is no victory even with the high priest, we see a yearly offering. And as long as that high priest is still offering the blood of bulls and goats, there is no winning the war against sin and judgment. The enmity with God still remains forever. I don't, I'm talking with Garrett this morning about wrestling. Can you? I mean, I wrestled for about a year. Back when I was about maybe Carson Garrett Garrison's age, I'm not sure. Just for about a year. But if you've ever wrestled, and many of us have wrestled our kids or whoever, and if you get into it and you wrestle, there's really nothing more grueling and nothing more, I think, that takes everything you have in your body than that two, three minutes in, in that wrestling match. Can you imagine wrestling? For the rest of your life. And then never getting a victory. This is, I think, what the system of the Old Testament was like. It just continues. And it does keep going. 
It keeps going, but there's never any finality to it. And I think just parentheses there by way of application as we think about those who are not Christians, because I, you know, I'm preaching mostly to Christians, and here we are in the church, but that is what we were doing before we, be, before we became Christians. And that's what the world is doing. The world is just continuing day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, wrestling against sin by trying to do something to say, God, this is, this is what I have done. There's self-righteousness. And this is what the world does over and over. But here, when we come to the offering of Christ, we see the words that He sat down. Now, I think it is nice after a hard day's work to just come home and sit down on the couch, get something to drink, maybe watch TV, talk with your, with, with your family or whatever you do. It is nice to sit down. After a long race, it's good to, to get off your feet after you've stretched a little bit and just get off your feet. Some people who have worked hard for many years can... Maybe one day retire and then finally rest and sit down from their work in a manner of speaking. Well, concerning the priests and particularly the high priests under the old covenant, they were not given a seat inside the tabernacle. They were not given a seat inside the temple just to maybe halfway through their work, sit down and rest, or when they finished, sit down and rest. Why not? Because their work was never finished. It kept going and going and going week after week, year after year. They came out of the tabernacle, they came out of the temple, and they waited again until they went back in, particularly the high priest, until they waited until the next year when they went back in again. But concerning the work of Jesus as our high priest, after offering himself as the spotless, sinless sacrifice on the cross, what did he do? He sat down. Now this is, this is a, a picture as God speaks to us in pictures. But where did he sit down? Where does the text tell us he sat down? He sat down at the right hand of God. When we sit down after a hard day at work, what happens the next day? The alarm clock goes off again. You're like, oh, it's time to get at it again. You take off and you go back to work again. But concerning the work of Jesus as the high priest, as regards to sin, he will not ever go back to work. He will not come back and offer himself again. And I, I even think of some of our Catholic friends who, in the Mass, he, they believe he offers himself again and again and again as the, 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 the wine and the, and the bread become, miraculously in their view, the, blo the blood and the body of Christ. And in that way, that's the most important thing they can do. So he's offered again, but Christ does not offer himself again. His offering was one of victory. He completed what those animals could not do. Also very important for us when we think about Christ sitting at the right, when we think about His sacrifice and sitting at the right hand of God. Those priests did not have the right, nor did they have the authority to sit down. But Jesus did. In the book of Hebrews, the author quotes Psalm 110, Four times. By the way, I think it's quoted at least seven in the New Testament. And so it, is, it's, it may be the most quoted ver verse in the New Testament. But in Hebrews, Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4 there, are quoted four times. And each time in Hebrews, there is a different emphasis. First time it's quoted is in chapter 1, verse 3. Go with me there. I'm just going to quickly look at these real quick. Chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So what's the context here? It is His glory, in essence, as God. 
his superiority, his preeminence. But then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. So that context is, is the glory, the personal glory of Christ. Second time it's quoted, chapter 8, verse 1, which we've already read. Look at it, look at it with me again, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in heaven. In this verse, he has the right to sit down because he, as priest, and his offering of himself is superior to those priests and what they came to do. And so he has the right, the authority, not just because he is God, in essence, and who he is, but he has the right because of the superiority of his offering. Chapter 10, verse 12. This is the third time. Turn over, that's our passage today. Chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In this chapter, the context is that God accepted this sacrifice. And this sacrifice we know is Christ Himself. Finally, turn over to chapter 12, verse 2. 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus. I'm looking forward to getting to these verses. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The context for this quotation is that He is victorious. He is the one who ran the race. He is the one who accomplished the will of the Father. And the prize comes to Him. If you win the race, you get the prize. If you win the wrestling match, you get the prize. Whatever it is. And so that is the context. This means, if we take all of those four together, Jesus has all authority to carry out the plan of perfecting the church. Now, let me quote some very common verses that, as I try to relate this. As Jesus has given authority, think, back to, uh, think down to us, and let's try to apply this for a moment. Can you think of any verses in the New Testament that speak about us having authority? The first one that came to my mind was John, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the what? Right the authority, the power to become the children of God. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians today. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus, if you've received Him as this text says, and your faith, even as minute as it might be, if it is trusting in Christ today, then you have been given the authority to be a child of God. And that is amazing. So we cannot say that all people in the world are children of God. Those who believe on Him. And it's because of His sacrifice. We are Christians today because Jesus was victorious in His sacrifice who now sits at the right hand of God with all authority. If this were not the case, we would not be reading John chapter 1, verse 12. And then can you think of another place maybe where the Bible speaks of of, of God giving us authority. What about Matthew 28, 18 to 20? What is the mission of the church? What is our mission? Someone to say, you should be able to answer this every time. Someone comes to you on the street and says, what is your mission as a Christian? Besides the fact that we are to glorify God, but what is our practical mission? As you go, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. That's his command. But what does he say right before he gives us this command? He says this in chapter 28 of Matthew. Jesus came and said to them, All authority. 
See, if they were still under the system of the old covenant and the old animals, what authority are they going to give them? They said just continue every year, not take care of sins. So when we go out and we proclaim the gospel, we can say with surety, you don't need to wait for the priest. You don't need to wait till the, whole, you know, till the priest goes into the Holy of Holies this year. We can say with authority, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven today. And I think that, that moves into teaching on the, the church in Matthew 18. that We've been given the keys of the kingdom, and that's for another day. And so, as we are sent into this world, we go out on the authority of Christ. Because He sits at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, we are not sent into this world by a king who is not victorious. Let me just tell you, all other religions serve lesser kings who are not victorious. They may seem victorious now. Sin may seem victorious for a season, but it is not. And the peoples and the kings of this earth may seem big and powerful and mighty, but all of that comes from God. All of it. So we serve a king who, that, that one who may... We're not waiting on him to be victorious. We're not thinking, will he be victorious? He now sits at the highest place of authority. And that's what that picture is. He sits at the right hand of God. We just can kind of picture that. We can't really do that, but we, we can. It's a mystery, but he sits at the place of the most, the highest authority. And this is all because of his offering himself, which comes back to our point. Let me be clear about really the book of Hebrews particularly. The context of this victory is his sacrifice in the book of Hebrews, which is the author's point right from the very beginning. So as regards sin, Christ has no more work to do. Again, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. This is why Paul can say, there is therefore now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we are justified. This is the doctrine of justification. The judge of all the earth comes before in his throne room and with his gavel and he says, looks at you as a sinner if you've believed on Christ and he says, you are not guilty because my son, the Lord Jesus, has taken your place. He has taken his, your sins upon himself He's given you His righteousness. You've given Him your sin. And you are declared not guilty. This is the doctrine of justification. But, by way of application, you might say, John, I'm a Christian. And you're talking about victory. Well, I still sin. And I sin, I, maybe you sinned this morning in a big way, clearly Everybody, for everybody to see. Or maybe you sinned in your heart for nobody to see. And so you might say, and you know what? I believe that's going to happen again tomorrow. Maybe. I hope not. But knowing myself, how many of us committed the same sins over and over again? Over again? How many of us? Whatever it is. And then we come back to Christ. And we say, I have sinned against you. It goes back to Sunday school book. Come to me all you labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's those who come to Him in repentance and faith. But you still might say, but where's the victory? Well, the victory is everything I've been talking about. Our sins are forgiven now. But concerning sin that goes on in our lives right now, as Christians... It's called a lot of things, but Paul calls it indwelling sin. This is an ongoing thing. The consequences of our sins are great. We don't want to, but we do. The consequences of them are, are great. And what about the consequences of sin in this world as well? And we think about, well, if Christ is victorious... What about the, the, the endless, as we turn on our TV or listen to our radios, and what do we hear? We hear of wars and rumors of wars and lies and cheatings and murders. I mean, particularly the, the, the great sin of, of abortion. I mean, it's, not, it's one of many, 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 many. 
but it's, it's in our face, and it's big. And then we see deceit, and cheating, and lying, and we see heartbreak, and we see loved ones die, and we see anxiety, and we see all of these things in our lives. We, if we were to keep going, even with the physical world, we, we have earthquakes and hurricanes and the groanings, even as it hit us head on a couple weeks ago here with Ian in Florida. All of these things are ongoing. And then, I mean, it, back to our own sin. What about your own sin? And I promise I'd, I'd mention Brittany. Because not that Brittany is a greater sinner than any of us, because we are all greater sinners in our own right. But I'm trying to answer her question from a couple weeks ago. What about the fight that goes on? Because really what we're talking about from the other perspective is the, where we are placed in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are seated with Him in the heavenlies. But there is this ongoing struggle with sin. And, and so these are the things... And very clear in the Bible, these are the things that will end at Christ's second return, or when He returns. Now, He is sitting at the right hand of God until all of His enemies are made His footstool. But in Hebrews, His sacrifice is the cause of victory for the Christian. This means that now, now, if you are a believer in Christ, your sins are taken away. You are clean. You're seated with Christ, and even as we've, we've looked at it a couple times now, we know that His sacrifice took care of our sins, took away our guilty conscience. And then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been washed, just like the, the ashes of the red heifer that were, that, were, that were put there in the bucket of water so they could wash themselves. Picture of the washing of the Holy Spirit. All of this because of this one-time sacrifice. And all of this is victorious. Chapter 9. Look over there with me. Turn over a page. Verse 28. Brittany, when will all this come to an end? Right here. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Let me just... That doesn't mean He's not going to put away all of these things I've talked about. He will, but not to deal with sin in our position, in our place. In Christ right now, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. And we go back to verse 14. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, let me just mention a few more things as we move into some applications. But there's also another side to the victory of Christ in His sacrifice and His sitting at the right hand of God. He waits now. So Christ is waiting. Until when will He wait? Well, that's an easy, I think that's an easy question. Well, it's His second coming. That's the easy part. But it says here in the text, until all His enemies are His footstool. So from one perspective now, Christ is victorious over sin. But the other side of this is that one day when He comes back, He will bring justice on the earth. He will take vengeance on His enemies. He will make all things right. When we take the Lord's Supper monthly, the very end, we do this until when? Until He comes. Until all of His enemies are made His footstool. And I know... Even Wes and I have lots of conversations about, and some of us in this, con in this congregation are having com conversations about end times, whether you throw some stuff over your head maybe, whether you, you believe in, you're a post-millennialist or an amillennialist or a historical pre-millennialist or whatever you are, there are differing views on whether it is a gradual thing that will take place, whether there's a golden age at the end, or whether things will get much worse. I think Weston says that the amillennialists are more pessimistic and the post-mills are more optimistic. I personally am not settled in, in these, but we all agree. We all agree that those things will take place at His second coming very clearly. 
And we know that all of his enemies will be crushed. It would be good to do another sermon to say what are, who are his enemies. And we know the last enemy will certainly be death. But let me give some applications before more, moving on to a much more brief uh, point number two. But here's some applications. Some of them short, some of them a little bit longer. First application, we are in a time of waiting now. We are in that time, the time between his first coming and his second coming as Christians. And from this perspective, we are to always be ready. Always. Another application. This also means that we must be patient. Knowing that God is is working all things for the good of His people. We must know that. So all of these things, whether, however they play out through all of the sin and the chaos and everything that fills this world all the way to the end, we must know as Christians, God works all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we have answers. I mean, just, uh, we watched a movie this week, I don't even know the name of it, but it was a really nice feeling movie um and there was a lot of truth in it and it was about a, a little girl who had had a sickness and she was she was healed which was great because i certainly believe god heals today and god you know got the glory and everything that that happened but yet the ways that that family understood suffering and pain was just, in my opinion, caught up into the health and wealth and prosperity of, of the way most Christians in our society look at things. Because hard times are coming. And, and, and they're, Greg, you're preaching next week on Psalm 42 and 43, the song we sang this morning. I look forward to hearing that. And, uh, and so read Psalm 42 and 43 before next week. But times, life is short and full of troubles. But as Christians, we find comfort, not in blaming God and not saying, God, I don't understand why. We don't have to understand all the answers and all the reasons why. But we understand that He works all things for good to those who love Him, called according to His purpose. So we must be patient now. Another application. Know that vengeance belongs to God. I must be frank. As I listened this week to the, you know, it's Kristen being Australian, and we're often hooked to the Australian news often, and uh, we've, we've something pulled up from New Zealand. And I watched the Prime Minister there speak. Kristen knows what I'm talking about. And uh, just concerning their new laws on abortion. And they, there, there are no laws except you can kill a child anytime you want to, even after they're born. It is absolutely absurd, and it is, and I just must admit, as Chris and I were talking, I couldn't even continue talking about it. I had to, to, to leave first because I was just sad because of such things. But then, at the same time, then my heart became a bit enraged. I'm like, how can that lady, and how can a, a group, a body of folks who make their laws, how can they do that? And so, we must know that vengeance belongs to God. In the meantime, we are to stand up for truth every chance we get. There are many issues, too, that the psalmist speak of when things are going on that are difficult in this life and things like abortion and we see such laws. The psalms can be very, very helpful to us. And even to see how David prayed sometimes to bring... For God to bring vengeance upon His enemies. So with that in mind, I would say to you, read the Psalms. And read those times when you look at what's going on in the world. And that will help you, help us pray better. And with that in mind also, we must never become bitter or angry in a sinful way. And I think that's what we, a lot of times, that's one of our big sins is we become angry in a sinful way, but we must never do that. We can be angry, but we must be patient, knowing that God will do what is right. At the same time, what do we do when we think of our enemies? What is one of the things we do? We might be, from the one hand, praying the, 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 the prayers of the psalmist, bring vengeance 
But what does Jesus tell us to do? Do you remember? How do we pray for enemies? Pray for them. Pray not just that God's vengeance will come, but pray they would be saved. You think about the Apostle Paul. Who was he before he became a Christian? In his own eyes, he was the most righteous man of all these things. But later on, Paul would say this about himself. I, am a, I was an insolent, violent, angry man. He was a first-degree murderer, premeditated murderer. But then he says, yet God showed me mercy. Let me just say, if you, if you are not a Christian today and you think your sins are too great, come to Him in repentance and faith. Trust this one-time sacrifice victorious sacrifice and the vengeance and the wrath of God will never come to you and look unto him and be saved another application have you ever heard of the word universalist universalism to be a universalist is to be one who believes that scripture teaches that all people will be saved in the end but verses like this and texts like this completely undercut that there is no such thing as universalism in this way this does not square up with psalm 110 as jesus waits until all his who enemies will become his footstool there's great judgment there otherwise there would be no judgment on any of his enemies if all were to be saved in this way final application for this truth for this point all future victories are dependent upon the very first victory of Christ as our high priest who laid down his life as a sacrifice. The first victory, which is his sacrifice, and then subsequently his resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of God. First victory and all of this together ensures the next one coming. If your sins are covered, you will not be a part of God's vengeance. But if your sins are not covered, you will be the object of God's wrath forever. And so when we look at the cross and this sacrifice, justice has already been accomplished if you are a Christian. Justice has been accomplished. That's the key. It has not been accomplished yet. But for if you're waiting and you're still not a Christian, it is the long-suffering of God and His goodness. I pray that it will lead to your repentance. All right, that was, a, that was one of the longer points I think I've ever preached. But let's move on to the last part here, which will be much shorter. Not only was the offering of Christ victorious, it was prophesied. Look at verses 15 to 17. And let me just say, one of the reasons I'm not hitting these verses in detail is because we've already done it so much through the last weeks of Hebrews. And so this is a summary. So I just want to hit this one truth, that His sacrifice was prophesied. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying. So this is the Holy Spirit speaking, who is God. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. See, with the old system, the sins are being remembered. Over and over, they would just allow them to continue on in that system of worship. (laughs) But then, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's what we've been talking about. But I want to just point out the part, just focus on the prophecy. Notice first, who bears witness? It is the Holy Spirit. And this is a clear statement from the author that that the Holy Spirit is the author of the Old Testament, and we know the entire Bible. Here, the Holy Spirit, who is in essence God, is the one who inspires the words of the Old Testament and the entire Bible. So God is the author of the Bible, and since God is the author, it can never lead us astray. It is without error, and it is God's Word to us. It will never lead us astray. But for our context, the author... If you think back, who was he speaking to? He was speaking to Jewish Christians. He was reminding them that, hey, all the scriptures you've been reading since you were a kid or whenever, all those years, all those scriptures point to this 
fulfillment. This new covenant. The old covenant will go away. But you know what? The new covenant has been prophesied. And I could give you verse after verse, particularly with Jeremiah. But Isaiah, Ezekiel, they're all there. If you go back and look, Zechariah, they're all in the Old Testament. If you'll just look through the lens of Christ, you will see them. And there they were prophesied. Now, as Gentiles, we, I don't, someone may be Jewish heritage in here that I don't know about, but we are Gentiles. And it's, we have a very hard time grasping this truth because we've grown up without such truths. We come to Christ and it's just a self-based righteousness. We can't do it on our own. God is angry with our sins. God has provided a way. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We believe on Him and we're saved. We don't have this system that they had. We just think, ah, that's absurd. The Jews would not just move on from something inferior to something that is superior. But for more than a thousand years since the time of Moses, Israel was under that system of worship. And that's all they knew. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the washings, the particulars of the law of Moses, all of the, all of the traditions. It was who they were. It was their culture. I'm reminded even when I go for a run or a walk downtown in First Baptist. I lived downtown Kannapolis and still First Baptist plays all the hymns. Anybody ever heard the hymns walking around Kannapolis? Hymns. I don't know what time they come on. The clock strikes at every hour, but there's hymns. And I just, that's just part of my culture. Whatever. But they... We think about them, their culture was so ingrained. And he's saying, move on. It was prophesied. Now here it is. Receive it. And then, the coming of Christ. <laughs> for, that, for the Jewish people, everything changed for those who embraced Christ. He fulfilled all the law and all the prophets. This is why so often, as Paul thinks about such truths... Paul worships, which is where I want to just spend the last bit of our time and then we're, we'll, we'll finish up for the day. But when Paul thinks about such truths as the fulfillment that was prophesied from the Old Testament to the New and the New Covenant, especially Romans 9, 10, and 11, after he says, you know what? All the Gentiles are going to come in. The other nations are going to come in. It's not just the Jews. And the gospel will go out to the ends of the earth. What does Paul do? Here's what he says in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, our God is great. Even from this morning, Jeremiah, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Sounds like Job. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. That's what we do as Christians. We praise and we worship God who is big and great and mighty. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. Paul's speaking about the gospel, the new covenant. And he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's what I'm going to point out. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Do you know the rest of the verse? According to what? The Scriptures. All of history has awaited the person and work of our great high priest prophesied in the Old Testament. So one application. Our response is worship. Who could think up such things but God? The things that I preach. And, and as Christians, these things are not foolishness to us. We should be like, wow, lights go off here and there because of the Holy Spirit. These are things that are not foolishness to us. To the world, they are foolishness. And so until our eyes were opened, where would we be? But when we think of such things, we say, Wow, God, look at your infinite, magnificent, mysterious plan from before the foundations of the world. A body I have prepared for you. 
who says, I will go and do your will. Christ says, I will go and do your will. What a mystery. Sending the Son to die on the cross was the plan of God from before the foundations of the world. The words, I will be your God and you will be my people, which we see often, particularly in the Old Testament, find their fulfillment in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the New Covenant. And here we are today as Christians under the New Covenant. Let me read verses 16 to 18 of our text one more time, and that's where we'll finish today. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds, and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And with these words, we will, we will close if you are a Christian today. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words today. We are so grateful. We worship you in spirit and in truth as your people. Who, before we were not your people, we were Gentiles. But all of us, because of sin, are not your people. We are children of wrath, enemies. But you commanded your love towards us, and while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So with that in mind, we close today, and we leave this place, and we go out, and we worship you. Father, help us to be bold in our witness. Father, and even deeper than that, give us affections and love. For you. Because we know that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. And vice versa, that where our heart is, there our treasure will be. And we know that even in the fight of sin in our own lives, we will be victorious. And we are as we are being sanctified. So help us today. And I pray these words will be helpful. We pray for Greg this week as he prepares to, to preach something dear to his heart and very important for all of us next week. Father, we give you this day, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove, to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove. You can also join us at the South Rowan YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship, and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening, and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.